0: Insiders, today I'm having a conversation with Omar Khatib, he's not only a good founder but also a really great person to listen to when it comes to advice on how you build your SaaS MVP, how do you come up with the product market fit strategy. With the conversation it covers a lot of topics, especially if you're just getting started with your SaaS, it's going to be extremely valuable. Just check out this short clip to get a taste of our conversation today.
1: Look at how you ship the smallest version possible. See how the customers are using it. Then look at where your customers are struggling in your funnel or they are hacking your tool together to make it work to and then build features around that. A great example that I heard was Justin Khan from Twitch. They so they started with Justin TV, but then they noticed people not streaming video game it's not video games sorry like not streaming like them outside in the park and things like that they started noticing people streaming video games
0: i invite you to listen to the whole episode of me having this with amar right after this sponsorship segment this episode is sponsored by the sas insiders studio we help sas founders build their minimum viable products (NVPs) launch quickly find a product market fit and grow from there. SaaS Insider Studio works with non-technical founders that are on the pre-seed or seed stage to help them execute on their product vision. To learn more, go to my LinkedIn profile that you can find in the description to this episode and shoot me a direct message there. All right, let's jump straight into today's episode. SaaS Cyrus, I welcome you to this episode of our show. Today I'm joined by Omar Khatib. He's a founder of JobPixel, and he's got a whole treasure box of interesting things for SaaS and non-technical founders that we're going to discuss here. But not to go too much into that beforehand. Omar, I thank you for coming to the show.
1: Thank you so much for inviting
0: me, Vlad for those who might not know you yet if you could give maybe one or two minute introduction of who omar is where you're coming from the background and what you're working on right now
1: yeah my name is omar i moved to the united states around 10 years ago from jordan i went to school here fell in love with tech and started working for a couple of companies you know saw that this this is a world of innovation here in silicon valley and you know built a really strong network of founders and the technical people around me. So it's extremely exciting to be around those types of people, which eventually led me to the current problem that I'm solving with my company, JobPixel, which is the use of video content on enterprises. Uh, We're mainly focusing on the hiring world today, but we are looking to expand our use cases outside of just the HR tech and talent acquisition tech in the future. I love dogs, big dog person, video gamer at heart. I love soccer, currently watching the Champions League. So Really excited for my team Real Madrid to win. Oh, yeah, and I recently had a baby with my wife around nine weeks ago, and we live in the Bay Area. Awesome. Well, congratulations on the baby. That's that's Thank a huge
0: step. I, I bet. Do you, Do you have a dog right now? I do. So I have two. So I ha- I have a dog, but I don't have a child yet. So it, it's almost like I'm I'm thinking like I'm almost practicing like having a baby, but but like the minimum version, like less commitment. Yeah. What's your take on this? I'm curious.
1: I think they're. Practically the same. The only difference is dogs can like do their own thing or they can go run around and play on their own and things like that. With babies, for the first like six months, you're not doing that at all. You have to be with them all the time or they cry bloody murder. So you have to be with them all the time. But for the most part, it's the same. It's really awesome to see the growth of the baby going from like having their eyes closed to opening their eyes to being able to start responding and like looking around. It's extremely awesome to, you know, just see that progression and how fast it happens too. And, you know, he, when he was born, he was nine and a half pounds. He's already at 15 and a half pounds. So seeing him almost grow by 50% is really crazy because you can actually see him in his height and his weight. And when you carry him around, also you build built pretty good arm, arm strength because you're carrying a baby all the time. So your biceps <laughs> are doing pretty well.
0: Well, yeah. I, I know they, I know they make more sounds than dogs, that's for sure, especially at night. So it, sun, depends but- it depends on the baby. It depends on the baby. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I guess when you're a founder you can also say like my baby is growing 20% month over month <laughs> basically. <laughs> speaking speaking about saas speaking about growth I know your your saas is is vc backed and you you rate, you've been to two rounds of fundraising. One thing that we talked of the air briefly is that fundraising is not a requirement for saas meaning that it, like it can survive with that. And you said you have some interesting perspective on What do you think you would do with the knowledge you have right now if you go back in time like, to the decisions when you get started on JumpPixel? Could you elaborate on that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think I look at fundraising as a tool, not a goal. Unfortunately, a lot of founders that I meet, they look at fundraising as the goal. Oh, I'm going to raise X amount for my company and that's it. And then you ask them, what are you going to do with that? And they don't have an answer to that. Most companies miss that slide uh, in their deck that shows how they're going to be using the money. They just want raise 5 million or 4 million or 3 million. And it's a means to an end. You have to, you know, build a financial model or a structure to show how you're going to use that cash in order to get to the next milestone. So money is just an accelerant. I always like to say venture capital is like rocket fuel. If you put it in a car, it's going to blow up. But if you put it in a rocket, It will shoot up and actually, you know, hit the stratosphere and and get out of the world essentially and and become a rocket ship. So a lot of founders, I feel like they focus as that as a goal.
0: Uh
1: What i learned is is selling your product is like the best type of money ever. You will meet some investors that are extremely engaged. And then you're going to meet investors that are, don't really, you know, are not around as much. And that happens to almost every founder. So if you're, you know, talking to some angels you know, that puts smaller checks in. They don't really check on the startup or are are not as involved. You'll meet a few of them that are extremely involved and the most helpful people in the world, but be prepared that 70 to 80% of the fundraising that you're going to do, those investors are not going to be with you every step of the way because they have a much bigger portfolio of other companies to worry about and an economy and a life and everything. So don't think that them putting a specific amount of money in is going to basically make them magically be yours. And they're going to help you with their connections and everything like that. That's not how it works. So that kind of takes me to the next phases. Who do you take money from? I've just like you pitch VCs about your startup and everything, have them pitch you as well and, and ask them, you know, how have you helped other you know companies in your portfolio get to the place where they are today. And we're so lucky with our venture partners that we've, picked. the Some of them were extremely helpful. One of them brought us our first enterprise client. The other one introduced us to a whole nother set of market that we never even thought we would sell into. And then the other one helped us with hiring a lot and strategy and conversations and even, you know, supporting my own mental health in some scenarios because how exhausting the journey is to become a founder. So fi- finding the right funders behind you is really important. But I always look at fundraising is a tool. It's not a requirement and it's not a goal. If you can go sell your product early on, that's the best thing you can do for yourself. That's the best cash you'll ever get. You're going to feel really good about it when you get it. And on top of that, you're not going to be selling any parts of your company anytime soon.
0: Well, I can resonate with that. I think the first SaaS venture I've been a partner with, we started by selling something before it was even built to our our customer. We made some exclusive offer, but the goal was Basically, it meant that we have something here, like it's working. We haven't built it yet. We already secured the sale, right? So I, I do believe that customer-funded growth is, is, well, is more natural growth, right, than, than, than VC-funded.
1: So, so, so here's the thing. I don't think that a VC funding you is a validation of your product or your company because that VC is not your buyer. They're, not the, they're probably not the buyer that you're going after. If you're a company in marketing tech, for example, you're going after directors of marketing and VPs of marketing. What is the VC gonna know about that? Probably not much. They're probably gonna find out some stuff during diligence. They're gonna reach out to experts and things like that. But the fact that the VC invested in your company does not mean anything. And the venture model is the following. I invest in a hundred companies, so two of them return my funds. So the VCs in their model, basically model out, 90% of their startups are going to fail and go to zero if not more. So why would a lot of founders use that as validation to their startup idea?
0: Well, I think it, it's, it also has a certain attachment to an ego and kind of achievement. Like I, I see a lot of times people are celebrating the rounds and like, this is totally fine. This is a huge deal. But a lot of times they celebrate it almost like, so we won, that's it. Like we're successful right now as a startup. Okay. But yeah, I also see that, yeah, we just got the tools to try it out now. So it's just like it, it's it's a it's a progress, but we're not there yet. It's it's just it's just the middle of the journey. I,
1: I think that celebrating funding rounds can help in in two ways. The first one is for recruitment. If you're trying to recruit better people, announcing your fundraising is really important, especially if you were funded by you know some well known VCs. And then on the other side, partnerships and enterprise clients. A lot of enterprise clients look at what. Greylock is investing in or Sequoia is investing in because they're like, oh, that's the next upcoming trend. AI is a great example, for example, you know, with ChatGPT and everything, everybody now is talking about ChatGPT and incorporating that. It's because the entire ecosystem is talking about it. So, and, you know, nobody's mentioning all the $10 billion that Microsoft has invested in ChatGPT as much, but it's still a part of the story that and how people are actually starting to look at ChatGPT as a potential solution for all a lot of the problems that they have. So those are the two reasons that I would I would support uh, announcing fundraising. But if you're doing it to gloat and show off, it's not the right way.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. We're on the same page here. Celebration is key. Celebration yeah. is key for multiple reasons. It's just what I'm saying is sometimes people attach it almost like a success, like we won as a startup. Like It's just the right. first stage. Now it's time to get the right people into place, attract yep. the customers and make something out of it. Yeah. One thing that you've mentioned that one of the key key milestones for SaaS startup is not necessarily even building the MVP, but we'll touch it in a second, but more like getting your first customer. What's your take on this? Maybe you can also talk a little bit more about the levels of SaaS. For example, your your company is enterprise level, right? So getting an enterprise customers a bit more hands-on, right? Than, Than getting some like small B2B or even B2C customer. So... How do you go from zero to one, basically? If
1: I knew the answer to that, I would probably want to be one of the smartest people in the world. <laughs> and I don't have the answer to that. So it's a it's it's a process, not a, a direct answer. So, but and there's a spectrum, right? There's product-led growth companies where they require zero interference from a salesperson or a customer success person to, to have you be successful on a specific tool. A great example of that is Loom, right? Really easy to use video video tool, maybe what you use right now to edit your podcast. You probably did not use, you know, talk to a salesperson or talk to a customer success person unless like there's something that horribly goes wrong to talk to someone at that company. But so you go PLG. And then I have what I like to call SMB slash enterprise, which is kind of in the middle where there's a little bit of touch points with, with your team to get them sold, but then they use the tool and then you're done. HubSpot is a great example. You still got to talk to a salesperson, but you don't have to engage with them a lot. Rippling is another great example. You know you buy the product, uh, you reach out to support every now and then, but you don't need them all the time. And then you have all the, all the way on the other side, which is enterprise slash service, where you're constantly needing support or customer success and things like that. And that's the pure, real enterprise. Think Workday. Think applicant tracking systems like the iSIMs and the, you know, the smart recruiters of the world. Those are products that require constant connection with the team that has sold you the product or the success team there to do that. And I think early on, you got to decide where you want to be. If you're PLG, your product has to be cheap. It cannot be expensive because nobody's going to come in, sign up and pay a thousand dollars a month, for example, for a single seat. Ain't going to happen. So I always see it as like the sub $99 a month products are in the PLG realm. If you're you know, a product between $1,000 to $3,000 a month, you probably fall in that middle bucket where there's a little bit of support. Think of HubSpot, for example, I think is an awesome tool. You know, If you're a decently started startup, you're still paying $1,000, $2,000 a month for HubSpot, but you're not reaching out to their support all the time. Then you go into the last bucket, which is the enterprise slash service or big enterprise. And that one is like, $5,000 plus right, a month, or depending on how size your organization is, it can be way, way more than that. And it can be in the tens of thousands, if not even hundreds of thousands a month. And that's talking workday. We're talking applicant tracking systems. We're talking very custom Salesforce you know, implementations. Those require constant support and things like that. So I think early on, you got to decide where you are, because once you pick a lane, it's extremely hard for you to change that, that path. Because you almost build like the company's culture and everything to follow that specific goal. The other thing as well is that is if you stick to enterprise, it's extremely hard for you to go to PLG because your product is already more complicated. Because enterprise clients require a lot more needs, integrations, single sign-on, data security, so many things that enterprise needs that a PLG company probably a PLG product probably wouldn't need, and you got to balance all of that out. So figuring that out early is really, really important. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. One thing you mentioned of the air, it's that the person needs to hone their skills of selling the product. I think you mentioned that, Omar, that a lot of times you see founders failing at selling their product. They're really good at like building it and figuring out the problem. But when it comes to presenting it in a way that will convert buyers, to come back to my initial question about getting the first customers, what do you think is the problem that you see and how, as a SaaS insider, if I'm listening to this, how can I avoid making like the biggest mistakes when it comes to selling my SaaS? So a lot of
1: founders focus on showcasing the features of their product. Look at here, look at my bell and whistle here, and look at what I built here. Because, and I don't blame them, right? It's because they're so excited to showcase the, the features and everything that they have worked really hard on building with their development team. The problem is the customer doesn't care. So the customer is going to use that feature or tool to get a specific thing done, right? So early on in the conversations, a lot of founders focus on their product and what their vision is. The customer doesn't care. You need to focus on the customer. You got to have the customer speak the most in the call, um, asking what their problems are. What's keeping them up at night? What is their boss holding on top of their head? How do you support them? into getting, achieving that specific goal or number or metric that they're they're trying to solve for is going to get you that customer way further than any show and tell demonstration that you'll do. I see a lot of founders, almost 99% of founders hop on calls with customers and then absolutely just show you features. It happens to me a lot. I get outreach. The outreach is great. The product looks good. I'm intrigued. I jump on the demo and then I'm just sitting here basically quiet watching a person show me a slideshow or a product doesn't work
0: well i mean i i get why they do this it's because they've built it it's almost like my baby right i've been building this this whole time i think it also comes to i'm sharing this perspective all the time that SaaS is a business of selling software not building it meaning that it's good that you can build it but that's not the end goal and a lot of times people so much focusing on that one particular thing that they're building it's like the analogy you gave with gardening, with yeah. seeding plants. Like there is a seed, but as a product, but there is so much more you need to do to make it grow. You need to the right soil, the right watering, maybe some fertilizer specific time of the year, like so many things to actually make that grow. But a lot of times founders are like, hey, I've got the seed, right? And just like you said about, if we put the seed on the table and, and tell it to grow, it's it's not going to happen, so. I think, I think it comes from the perspective that a lot of times people are getting trapped into building products, not necessarily selling them.
1: Correct. I agree. I think there is a world where founders start learning how to sell really well and focusing on the customer problems. Almost every successful founder I've met have mastered the art of selling. You talk to them and they just you they make you sell yourself on their product without them even showing you the product and i've met people like that and they are so good oh man they're incredible because they don't focus on the tool they they're like what's your problem talk to me and keep think of it as like a therapy session you want someone to get comfortable you want them to keep talking and talking and talking and talking and telling you everything that that you need to to know if you come into the call and you're not letting the customer speak You don't know anything about that customer to use in your argument to tell them why you're using, why why they should buy your product or service. But if you let them speak, you're going to start learning a lot more about their day-to-day, what's going on. And then you can use all of those points as ways to build an argument to why they should buy your product. And almost most of the time, you're not going to need to even do that argument because they're going to do it for you because you've listened to them and then connected your product to their actual true problem or issue. That they're dealing with every single day yeah go ahead
0: let's continue
1: the other thing that I, I i see a lot is you know companies are tired of SaaS. they are so tired consolidation is happening people are trying to get less and less tools so if you come in and show me another product with a lot of features and everything it overwhelms me as a buyer i'm like okay i already have something that does this and this and this so they start comparing you to features instead of the actual benefit that you're you're getting them on the other side or what the ROI is. And you never want to be in that place. Every you're gonna fall flat every single time. And then most of your demos are just gonna be burned leads, basically.
0: Well, I mean, I totally get that. I'm also using a bunch of SaaS. Like every person that's in tech, they're using a bunch of other products. And the last thing I want is look at the list of hundred features and trying to make sense from. Like my head is already like I'm is already in pain because of so many things I need to keep in mind. Last thing I want, I want to solve my problems, not add more, right? When it comes to sales, like I, I can totally resonate, of course. It, it feels like if you're talking, you have the power, but it's actually the one who's asking questions, who's getting the conversation, right? But we would be speaking for tens of thousands of hours with you <laughs> trying to explain what sales is. If yeah. I'm a SaaS insider, if maybe I, I do appreciate that this is not my strongest skill set, what do you think is the best way to to improve that? Maybe any specific resources, communities, and special speakers, books, <clears throat> anything that personally inspired you and helped you grow in that in that sense.
1: I mean, so the first one is I, I have a really great group of advisors that surround me that are, you know, awesome salespeople. I've worked in business development for a long time and understand the the good, the bad, and the ugly in in sales. So they you know, give me a lot of information. The other one is a really awesome book called The Challenger Sale. And then the third one is building a playbook for your sales approach, which means setting up a minimum of 10 and honestly, like seriously, like a minimum of 10 actual questions that you need to ask that, que- that customer when you're talking to them. If you ask questions, you're for the most part, you're going you're gonna to have them do the selling for you. So ask them a minimum of 10 questions in the call and let them speak. Do not talk. Do not demo your product. Do not do anything all the way until the end of the call. After you get those, those questions answered. What metrics are you, are you responsible for? What does your day-to-day look like? What keeps you up at night? Everything that has to do with the problem or what they're dealing with and what's bothering them, keep digging on that. If you keep doing that, you're going to have that customer answer you why they need your product without you even needing to do anything. You basically have them reveal all the answers to you that you need in order to get
0: that sale cost. Love it. Love it. Great advice. Uh, Omar, one thing you mentioned as well, when we were speaking about the potential, let's say things that SaaS and might find helpful, you mentioned that ability to partner or integrate with existing products, with existing builder companies are key for startups in the making, in the beginning. Could you elaborate a bit on that? Maybe some examples. So what does that mean? And what things I need to pay attention to the a SaaS insider when I'm launching a product to the market? Absolutely.
1: So for example, let's just say you're using a new prospecting tool to reach out to people on like, LinkedIn. If the tool doesn't integrate with your CRM, let's just say HubSpot, your likelihood to buy is going to drop like 90% because it doesn't integrate with HubSpot, which means in your mind, you're going to be like, oh, I'm going to have to have another manual task of me taking those leads that this tool got me and then go and import them into HubSpot, which takes a lot of time. So integrations early on with the target market that you're going after are really important. You gotta know what tools they're using in order to sell them on your tool, which is again, part of discovery. What are you using today and why is it not working? And so you connect your tool to what they're doing today and how it integrates with them. Because you're not, if you think you're a startup that is like, you know, you're getting your first 10 customers and you're gonna make that customer leave their incumbent that they've been using for five years, you're absolutely dreaming. That's not going to happen. Their boss's boss is not going to let it happen. A lot of people in the organization, like, there is a lot of selling that is going to happen behind your back out, out after that demo. The person that you're talking to on that call should become your champion. And that champion is going to go out there. And one of the first questions they're going to ask on their team is, oh, how does it work with our existing tools? It's going to happen every time. I'm using this AI note-taking app right now. I absolutely love it. So instead of me having to, you know, write notes or, you know, type my notes while I'm talking to, you know, the customer on the call, the AI does it for me. It just transcribes it. And then after the call, it sends me, you know, a link and all that. It integrates with HubSpot and pushes it directly into the, the deal. So I have it in there. So whenever I go in there, I'll have all my notes, everything I've talked about, all the questions, everything is right there organized for me. That made my life so much easier because it removed hours of work from me during the week. But if it didn't integrate with HubSpot, and then if it wasn't that easy to use, I'm probably not going to use it. You could have given me a transcription tool and then I can add it to my call. And then after that, I have to go to it, get the transcript, copy paste it, then go to HubSpot, then paste it in, then make sure that it's properly set up. It's a lot of work. But if I do that automatically, I am more way more likely
0: to buy it. And I'm even willing to pay more for it because it's integrated. I agree. I think it also has to do with retention of your users. Because one thing is if you don't provide those integrations, if you don't provide those conveniences, those problems solved, you might be still compelling for them to get started with you. But we're when, when not building, most of most of the founders, they're not building something so unique it cannot be replicated. They might be building something better for a specific audience or maybe just faster than anyone else. But I think if you're not addressing those small problems, if you're not thinking from start to finish, what's the interaction look like? It's just a matter of time of someone Doing the same product and just doing better at this specific thing that you didn't do like integrations and people just churn they'll just ship ship like switch boats right so i think my my goal is as a SaaS founder when i'm building something is how do i make it really easy to get started but so hard to kind of switch in a way that like it solves so many problems like it's just it just it's, it's not worth for me to for all the effort to to try to fix it all externally somewhere absolutely i agree I think you mentioned you have a few co-founders with you, right?
1: Just one. Yeah. My co-founder, Anthony.
0: Got it. Got it. So are are you, is there any one of you are like software engineers, technical people or?
1: Yes. My co-founder used to be a director of engineering at LinkedIn.
0: Got it. Got it. One question I have more for my audience than for myself is when you are building the MVP, the minimum viable product, what is the what is the philosophy? What's the mindset what, when it comes to, okay, how do I scope out the MVP? How do I launch it? How do I ship this? Because a lot of times founders, especially non-technical, they have really great idea in their mind. They might even think of the problem, the target audience, how it ties into solution. So they have that in their mind. How do you get that to market as an MVP to validate that hypothesis? How do you make sure that you're not building a viable but not minimal product, <laughs> something huge that takes two years to build? or building something so minimum it's not viable, right? So how do you make sure that all three letters are in your MVP? So our
1: situation was a little bit different because my co-founder has had an exit in our industry and has been in the industry for a long time. So it was a lot easier for us to build an MVP. One, because he's an absolutely amazing engineer and he was able to build a really great team around him in the early days. But we also knew what we were building because we knew the problem really well. It wasn't just an idea, it was, we already knew that there was a problem again, and we talked to a lot of clients early on before we built the product to verify that there's a problem there. So our approach is different. I can't give much advice. The only thing is just validate there's a problem. Don't ask the customers for solutions. For God's sake, please don't (laughs) ask them for the problems list them out, and then it's your job to solve the problem. Don't ask them for, oh, what do you think video would, would solve that? Or do you think blah, blah, blah tool would solve that? Don't ask that. That's not their job. Their job is to tell you what the problem is. It's your job to solve it well enough. Product market you, is your product solving the problem better than the other alternatives.
0: That's what I like to always say. Yeah. Do, you, do you remember how much time it took you to build your first MVP, like a first version from the beginning?
1: It took us around four to five months, I would say. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. The question I was asking, and more so when you're building this, how do you know what to include in the first version? Because a lot of times, even if you know the problem, it's still so tempting. Oh, let me add that feature. that will be good. Before I launch it, let me just add that. Oh, also this thing. Before you know, they're two years into development. They haven't launched yet, but they're developing because this is going to be huge. You know, and then in two years, it becomes obsolete. How do, how do you go about understanding this is the version that we're building? We're not going to get into feature creep. We're not going to it slow us down. We know exactly what we want to ship. How, how, how do you go into this position?
1: I think discipline is really important. And then, you know, having discipline and understanding that you need to ship the, the, the smallest version or the minimum version possible because you need to verify if this is usable or not. So let's, you know, say I want to build a texting tool. Does the notification really matter? Probably not. All you need to verify is, does this send a text to Vlad's phone or to this person's phone? That's v one that it works. It was able to do exactly what it was promising to do. Adding features only happens if you're overthinking. Take a step back. Look at how you ship the smallest version possible. See how the customers are using it. Then look at where your customers are struggling in your funnel, or they are hacking your tool together to make it work to, and then build features around that. A great example that I heard was Justin Kahn from Twitch. They, so they started with Justin TV, but then they noticed people not streaming video game and it's not video games, sorry. Like not streaming like them outside in the park and things like that. They started noticing people streaming video games and The video games videos had the highest level of views than any other pieces of content that were being streamed. So they're like, oh my God, there's something here. Like people are using it to stream video games. I wonder why it's because there was no easy way to do it, right? You can't connect anything to your TV to be able to, I don't know if you remember back in the 2007, 2006, when people were like streaming their gameplay on YouTube and like show call of duty and all those, right. They realized that it's a problem and people were like streaming themselves from there. And they realized that that's the feature set that they should go after. Building tools for gamers, and then that's how they actually went from a broad market into a very focused market. So uh, all, yeah. So you know, I I don't have an answer to it, but ship the minimum,
0: see how people use it, then add features based on that feedback. Not before. Justin Sanders, for those who are listening, I highly recommend looking for the whole Twitch story because it's 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 really inspiring. It really t- tells you that you can make a lot of mistakes along the way and still succeed if, if you're paying attention and if, if you're working towards. I know which, I'm not sure, but I think it was years since they actually figured out like video games is, is what they need to be focusing on. I think like, they were doing premium. a bunch of random stuff before that. Yeah, it was around three, three
1: years, yeah. It took them a lot. And,
0: and I think even founders say, like, they, internally, they didn't believe they have a product market fit. They wanted to boast about it because investors and stuff. But inside, they understood like this is not sustainable. We don't have product market fit. We don't have something that's growing on its own. Correct. That's that's a really inspiring story. The question of mark here is, let's say you could, let's say you could give advice to younger self, someone who's a couple of years earlier in their career. They haven't got the recent experiences with with the startup they currently at. Because a lot of times founders who are listening are in the same boat. So they're not in this journey yet. They're just about to get started. What do you think are the things you would tell a younger self from your experience that you've got with JobPixel as an entrepreneur, as a founder? What are the things you learned that you wish you knew when you got started?
1: Be a cautious optimist. Don't be too optimistic because things will always disappoint you and take longer than you think. Take care of your mental health. If you're not sleeping and you're working 24 seven, you're no good to anybody, even to yourself. And then be, this is very cliche, but be obsessed with the customer, but not in a way where you're like, oh, answering every email and everything. No, like joining on calls, being, having conversations with your customers and understanding, be them, be in their shoes. Like you need to be, you need to know your, your customers so well that like, you can almost imitate them waking up in the morning, going into their computer, doing the specific things that they need to do and seeing the problem that they face every single day. Period. End of story. Like you need to be the customer. That's how you need to get to. And you only get there by having them talk to you and explain to you what they're dealing with every single day. If you keep talking and talking and talking and telling them that your product is the thing that will change the world, it ain't going to do shit for you. Sorry, but it's not. You've got to focus on that become your customer by learning who they are and understanding everything about their day-to-day. It's like, it's like me coming in right now. Right. And I, you know, it's about the feeling and how you, I'm, I'm, I'm selling you a Ferrari, for example. Hey Vlad, it has 800 horsepower. This is how many CCs it is. This is how many, this is how the components work. This is the, where the button is. You don't care. You, you're like, but if I come up to you and be like, Vlad, imagine how you're going to feel in a Ferrari. Going to be driving down the road. You're gonna, you know, get the feel, you know, the air through your hair. You know, you're gonna feel good. All of that. That's what sells people. How do I, How is this gonna make me feel? And how is this gonna? What's the ROI? Not where the button is. Not how How what kind of gas the car takes. That happens after, right? It's everything in life. So a lot of people to focus on the features. You're, dude. You're not selling them on the features. <laughs> you're selling them the outcome. So learning who, who your customer is and becoming them is going to make your life so much easier when you're selling them the tools. Yeah. Listen more, talk
0: less. Good. Okay. this is good. One thing you loosely mentioned, I want to make sure you emphasize this as well, is you're not only thinking about them in a the process that you're interfacing them on. For example, when they're working on this particular task where you help them with, but also what happens before and after that. Just literally, just like you said, like, they wake up they go to the device what do they do because the experience that happens before and after this interaction can also be impacted by you by the way you introduce them to this problem or how they exit this problem just like an example with this lead generation right you get some leads what happens after that how they go into crm things like that that you might not think are important but are actually creating another problem if you don't take care of them yeah exactly so I wanted to emphasize that because sometimes, well, like we, when we got through this, it's like it's obvious, but I want to make sure SAS insiders also pick it up. Yep. If I'm a SAS insider, or maybe if I'm a potential investor or just a fellow SaaS founder who wants to connect, maybe exchange value, seek, seek some help, or, or try to provide it, what is the best way to connect with you? We'll be putting links in the description, but just wanted to know what's the best media. Our audience i
1: prefer LinkedIn. I'm available on LinkedIn. I make a lot of videos on LinkedIn. I'm always connecting with people. So please connect with me there and I'm always happy to chat and meet. Yeah,
0: that's typically right. Awesome. So we'll put the LinkedIn for Omar in the description so you can connect and, and move forward from there. Omar, what do you think would be the grand vision, the grand idea for our episode? Let's say the person our listeners could only take take away one big idea. Let's say it's it's the only thing they could take away from this. What do you think that will be in a, in a few sentences? Learn how to sell, but that's it. Yeah. That's good. That's concise and it was very fast. So I, I know I know you need it. Okay, awesome, awesome. What would be the best way to, to conclude the episode? What would be the note you, you would like it to conclude on?
1: I mean, I'm just going to reiterate the kind of the same points, right? It's, I see it a lot. You're, you're a founder, you're a builder. I'm proud of you. It's a, it's a really tough path to take, but you have to go and build other skills, outside of just building and being a great thinker. Yeah, your chances are you're not Steve Jobs. You know, it's it's true. Everybody wants to be Steve Jobs. Everybody wants to be, you know, those big founders that have changed the world. But those are people are literally one in a billion. It's extremely rare to be those people. You don't just go up on a stage with a device and everyone's like, oh my god, this is amazing. The you know, build it, and they will come. World is not is not there. Even Uber, Uber was such a great idea. Not much work they had to put in to making that consumer platform. It is an insane amount of level of strategy, execution, the amount of money that they had spent, and everything. So, build skills to help you be a better founder. Like, and I think sales in SaaS specifically, B two B SaaS is extremely important. If you don't know how to do it. Hire someone that knows how to do it, but you got to learn how to do it because it's just it, it's really difficult to convince someone to buy your product if you're just shoving features in their face.
0: Omar Khaitib, everyone. Omar, I okay. thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me on the show today. Of course, Vlad, my pleasure. Assassin's Artists, make sure to connect with Omar. Make sure to check out Job Pixel, and we'll see you in the next episodes.